Hello, hello, welcome to our Job Stamp podcast. Let's give a round of applause to Ishani Behara, who is our next guest on the podcast. Ishani developed a biosensor-based POC device for chronic kidney diseases, with which she received the first place Student Choice Award at the 2019 Sigma Psi Student Research Conference, and she also participated in 2018 uh, when she received the first place in engineering and induction. She is not only a star in the STEM fields, but on the stage as well. Ishani in the American Protégé International Vocal Competition was selected to perform solo at Carnegie Hall in December of 2019. Ishani is in the ISIF squad as well, a 2019 and a 2020 registered finalist. Her research project is on developing a biosensor that can detect platelet hyperaggregation in cardiovascular disease. She also became a winner of Youth in Action, being the VP of Palm Beach County Behavioral Health Coalition's Teen Coalition. The organization is dedicated to preventing underage substance use through education and promoting self-advocacy. She's also the president of Trium Music Honor Society and an accomplished woman in science. The content we're going to discuss is going to be music to your ears. So let's dive in. Hello, Ishani. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Really glad that you're on the podcast because that you are interested in pursuing the path of both music and engineering is so unique. So let's start by discovering this alpha phase of your life. Actually, in engineering, I didn't totally start it until high school, actually, because I was not really in a place that was super supportive of a lot of the things that I've seen people do in terms of research and stuff. And when I came into high school, there was a more uh, stable environment into how I could pursue those things. But for music, I've actually been singing since I was a kid. I started at this like summer camp when I was six, and I was given a part in a musical where I had to sing a solo in front of hundreds of people in an audience. And I don't know, but for whatever reason, it didn't scare me as much as you would think it did. And from then, it's just been one of the most natural things I've ever done. So, but in terms of doing the two of them together, that really only started once I joined high school. So you really had that childlike confidence when it came to music and you were just a natural from the beginning, which is so great because if you look around, not just in the musical world, but in STEM fields as well, when you have to present before a lot of people, you might get stage fright and you didn't have that. So that's definitely a bonus. Uh, you started to show interest towards the engineering field in school. Can you expand on that a little bit? I've always had a passion more for biology and health science, even from when I was a kid. And I always thought I wanted to be a doctor. But when I came into high school, I really discovered what the field of research was all about. And I started doing projects in like a bioengineering realm. And that was a great way to kind of combine both my love of bio and health science and medicine, but also this newfound love of engineering that I didn't even realize that I enjoyed doing. So that was really fun. I think it's like a common pattern within scientists that we want to become doctors and be involved in the healthcare section, which is absolutely beautiful. Mm -hmm. But somehow mm -hmm. along the way, we develop passion for other things that might benefit the health sector, but you know, not involved necessarily in doing the physical aspect of the job. And it's yeah. Re yeah. <laughs> really interesting that you mentioned that engineering 
you have different kind of formulas that you have to apply. It's a little bit more distinct and perhaps music in its um, way how you have to compose a song and it follows certain rules might have a little bit of similarity to the engineering. How do you view the intersection of those two fields? Oh yeah, there's definitely similarities between the two. Um, one of them is actually creativity. So like you said, in terms of writing music or even just in terms of preparing a performance, there's a huge creative aspect into like how you approach it and the different ways that you can think about what the song means and how you want to perform it and how you want to make it unique to your style. But there's also a huge creative aspect in research as a whole, but especially in engineering in the sense that you are creating new devices and new solutions to help people. And even music can also be used to help people and do good for the community. And I think the whole brain approach, as I've heard it being referenced as, using your left brain in terms of the STEM technical fields and the right brain in terms of the music, arts, and more typically creative fields, it gives new insights into how to approach both things. And I think that's been really beneficial. Absolutely. And perhaps like after a long day in the lab or behind a computer, it's a welcome distraction to go back to music and sing. Do you feel that way? Oh, definitely. It's a great stress reliever as well. And you mentioned the public outreach aspect, which you're going to expand on, but you've already sown the seeds. So I'm going to go forward with this question because you've talked about creating smart solutions. And one of those solutions is that you've tackled a problem that is pretty huge, not just in the US, but in the world globally, because CVD, cardiovascular disease, is one of the leading causes of death while also creating a substantial economic burden. So how did you tackle that in your research work? I created a biosensor that was used to diagnose and detect for cardiovascular disease. And I created not just any biosensor, but I tried to make it low cost and point of care so that it could be accessible to people around the world, especially in lower developed countries and low resource areas, because actually not only is CVD one of the leading causes of death in the world, but three-fourths of the annual CVD deaths come from lower developed countries. So by having a device that could diagnose for and detect for the condition early on, it's really beneficial to patients to be able to then access treatments and things earlier on and potentially get better and have a more manageable and be able to manage their condition better. Um, so I did this by measuring something called platelet hyperaggregation, which is essentially the extreme clumping together of platelets. So platelets in a normal context, they would clump together in order to prevent excessive bleeding. So like, let's say you get a paper cut. There's a reason you don't bleed out completely. It's because the platelets form this plug to kind of prevent that from happening. But the issue is, is that when these platelets begin forming these clumps for no reason, and they just, these clumps kind of travel throughout the body and then can lead to certain blockages in arteries and stuff like that, which is one of the precursors to a lot of the symptoms of cardiovascular disease and heart disease. And this is also a symptom of many precursors to cardiovascular disease, such as like diabetes and stuff like that. And so part of making my device more accessible to kind of measure this phenomenon 
was that I worked at the microfluidic scale, meaning I only use really small amounts of fluid. So in this context, my device only requires three droplets of blood in order to get these results. And I used the electrical resistance of these platelet clumps because as they increase in size, their resistance increases. So by being able to measure that, it can be indicative of a worsening CBD condition. Very interesting. Three droplets of blood is enough could be the headline for <laughs> the device you've developed. It just really shows the the smart aspect of it and that it's not just low cost, but it doesn't require that much of putting yourself out there in the hospital you know what i mean uh you have to yeah, do exactly. several screenings and i don't think a lot of people are fascinated by those ward walls in general oh no yeah because by making it as minimally invasive as possible it allows for more people to be able to conduct the test easier because potentially it can be done in a field hospital or in a village in a lower developed country or even in your own house type of thing. And it my prototype actually only costed around 72 US dollars, whereas current devices that are being used run upwards of $5,000, if not more. Wow, that's incredible. On the fact that in lower developed countries, you don't even have hospitals in rural areas. Maybe it's just a hut or a health center, but exactly, definitely yeah. not the kind of hospitals you might see in, in Europe or in the US. So you worked in engineering and of course you combine the two fields because now in STEM we combine fields and it's so great that the borders could be vanished in that way. And in terms of that, you've created two types of um, prototype. Which biosensor design proved to be the most efficient in detecting platelet aggregation? After doing a lot of different designs with different material combinations, I came across this small glass substrate with indium tin oxide electrodes that were kind of screen printed on. And based on the pattern of the um, sensor that I had found, I created a well kind of design based using a cheap polymer called PDMS, which would really help in reducing the cost. But it the well-based design was really to just contain the fluid into the one small prototype per se. And that just allows the device to be more handheld and easier to handle and stuff. That is so great. Of course, it's related to the chemical properties and that proved to be the smart biosensor design. You've got that data covered. And when someone presents such a project that could be globally impactful in large measurements, I'm really intrigued to ask, how do you imagine the project to develop in the future, creating a startup or moving into a larger scale distribution of your device? Oh, yeah, definitely. So I've definitely been thinking about doing potentially patenting or just really working with other people to kind of push the device out there. Um, one of my biggest things was that I used an Arduino microcontroller to power the device instead of using a using more fancy or specialized equipment per se. And so one of the things that I'm still currently working on is just trying to improve the sensitivity of that device by, to power the whole thing. And I'm really working on putting it towards a patent per se, fingers crossed, but definitely um, I have been thinking about like potentially if I wanted to make it more of a kit per se, 
that can then be like mass produced and given to people who can use it to the best to address the condition in wherever they are. Yes, and in the greatest sense, the patient will receive the whole package in return. Another thing I also wanted to hopefully test with actual patient blood, because when I did the project, I didn't really have access to actual CVD patient's blood. So I kind of simulated it using collagen, but to kind of induce the aggregation to take place at different levels of severity. But I would really be interested to see how it would react with actual patient blood once I have that access. You can say that, okay, here's my device and it worked with the X amount of patients and now it can move on to the market after, of course, having the patent and finger cross for you. I'm cheering you on that process because it can be very technical, but the reward will be sweet at the end. And you mentioned that you're working on it. Are you able to continue your research um, within the four walls of your home in this pandemic situation? Currently, just because the blood has to be done in a lab, all the blood-based testing. But in terms of the programming, I am able to work on that at my house just because I can. I have a computer. I can code at my own house. But a lot of the wet lab testing has to be done on uh, in my lab, but which is currently closed due to the pandemic. So just trying to stay patient, see what I can do from the walls of my own house. It's great that you can still cover that side. And I think that pandemic situation, it just shows that how much you're able to do. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of really cool things that are coming out of this pandemic in the sense that people are really seeing like what's available out there. There's a whole new breadth of knowledge that's available through like different papers opening up subscriptions and different data sets that people are releasing to the public in order to just gain more knowledge and kind of spread that knowledge around with everybody so we can all just kind of learn more about what's going on and just even about other things that are unrelated to COVID-19 but and different solutions that people are coming up with as a result of that. So I think it's really interesting to see kind of how we as a society have shifted based on the fact that you said that analyzing data that is currently available for the public is so important because now data analysts are going to be the future workers in the job market because now people are learning how to make connections in the ocean of numbers and draw out substantial conclusions. Definitely. Now, of course, the pandemic situation has a negative side to it because uh, you could have attended ISEF 2020, but let's date back a little bit and tell me what were some of your favorite moments, your highlights of that exceptional week in 2019? There's so many. Uh, One of my favorites is definitely the pin exchange that's at the beginning because that was really my taste, my first taste into what ISEF truly meant, which was like, really interacting with kids from truly all over the world who had such a profound interest and passion for math, science, engineering. So that was such a cool day because I literally got to meet people from so many different countries. I still have all my pins that I collected that day. And then just even smaller things like um, in the quad, we all, my friends and I played Just Dance game with Team Australia And even on a more technical side, the public day to hear about the type of work that a lot of people were doing in all the different categories, it was really interesting to see like what everybody's doing around the world and how everyone's able to just 
convene and really share that that wealth of knowledge together. Um, and then side note, since ISO 2019 was in Phoenix, my friends and I got to see the Grand Canyon. It's a three hour drive, but it was well worth it. It was beautiful. Wow, that's so great. You got the all around experience of Arizona. Yeah. When looking at a Grand Canyon, it must have been so majestic and, and breathtaking. It really is. The pictures I took don't even do it justice. It's so like vast and massive and gorgeous. I'm, I would love to go back there. Egypt one, definitely the Team India one. That was really pretty. And then I like the South Korea one too, because that one was really cute. It was like a button with like different pictures on it. And I remember um, even, I think, I believe it was Team Singapore. They had a, They handed out stickers. So I have a little sticker on my badge as well as all the pins. You know, there are those people who make Guinness records out of traveling to all of these distinct countries and they collect <gasps> souvenirs. Oh, yeah. They're just spending their money because they just have to go to the pin exchange to do the same. <laughs> uh, because now you have souvenirs <laughs> from, I don't know uh, how many countries, but in all ISAF getters, people and students together from eight different countries, which is just incredible in itself. Connected to that... I believe that if someone is in the ISAF network, a Sigma Psi newsletter has probably visited your mailbox. Mm -hmm. So the ISAF kids know about Sigma Psi and you know even more because you developed a biosensor-based POC device for chronic kidney diseases with which you received the first place student choice award at a 2019 Sigma Psi research conference. Now, could you expand first on how does it provide help to patients and what's your design all about? This project was looking more into the effects of chronic kidney disease as opposed to cardiovascular disease. And here I learned that there are over 90% of those with CKD um, and 50% of those with uh, end-stage renal disease, which is like the more severe stages of CKD, who are completely unaware of their condition due to the lack of affordable and accessible diagnostics that exist out there. Because a lot of tests can take days, if not weeks, to return results or require large amounts of blood similar to the cardiovascular disease uh, diagnostic tests. And even for chronic kidney disease, sorry, the urine-based tests that exist are the ones where you have to be kept in a hospital and they collect it over 24 hours, which is just inconvenient and takes a lot of time. I made a new biosensor, which was with using carbon-based electrodes that could take a droplet of urine and through some other chemical methodologies, including cyclic voltometry, was able to measure something called the urine-albumin-creatinine ratio, which is just the ratio of these two proteins in the urine, albumin, and creatinine. And their increased presence in urine is indicative of deteriorating kidney function. So I had that urine ACR piece and that plus biometric called the serum creatinine which is the amount of creatinine of the protein creatinine in the bloodstream. These two things is what's used to essentially calculate for and diagnose chronic kidney disease. But one of my goals was I wanted to make my device non-invasive. And so because of that, I developed a neural network that could actually predict that serum creatinine value. So you didn't even need to draw blood at all. So with that predicted value, using the urine ACR data that I had collected, plus some other CDC data um, from their different publicly available data sets. I created this network and then the value that is outputted is kind of plugged into this formula 
And then that leads to getting CKD diagnostics and results and puts it in a stage of severity. I really appreciate those ones who are investing in the programming fields because with this project as well, you've gathered data, you've made the correlations between the protein ratio and urine function and the creatinine concentration. Gather all of that information and put it in a network that actually brings and produces results that help you determine medical condition you are investigating. And I believe when you are using these huge data sets, it must take a lot of time. How does the programming aspect of this project look like? I had to comb through a couple of data sets for this. And what I had done was essentially knock out the patients that didn't have all the different parameters I was looking at. Because I was looking at different demographic parameters that like certain age, gender, and race groups have higher or lower risk for CKD. So I looked at those. And then I looked at some other precursor conditions like obesity, diabetes, hypertension. So any patient that didn't necessarily have all of these um, fields filled out in the set, I knocked them out. So it kind of reduced my data set down to who didn't have any gaps in what I was looking for. I just ran a lot of different testing and tried to experiment with the different types of um, methodologies with folding and stuff. So yeah, it took a long time, but it was something that was really rewarding in the end because it's like a new skill that I'm still working on and it's a completely new field to me. And it was so interesting to really dive in for the first time and check it out. You can move outside of your comfort zone. Yeah, definitely. In the past, counting in all of those factors must have taken a substantial amount of time, but now with programming skills, you've experienced an exponential growth rate of knowledge in that sense. And yeah. it's so great to see that the advancement of biology also relies on programming in itself. Programming is such a universal thing now. Like it's It has applications in basically every field of science, if not every field, like in general. And so it's really cool to see how research itself is shifting in that direction, that programming is kind of like, it's kind of like a base knowledge thing, like everyone, I feel should have some experience just because it's a great way of thinking, but it's also really good to apply in certain fields. Kind of a digitational way of communication. When you live to, I don't know, a country close to you, in the case of the U.S., it might be, you know, learning Spanish as a second language, or in Europe, it's usually French or Italian or whatever. But because you are so close to that country, to that land, you want to learn the language to communicate with those people. And I feel like that biology and programming is in a similar kind of situation. So it's an add-on, definitely, if, if you know that as a second language. I've never looked at it that way before. That's really cool thought them in my mind so that's new to me as well that <laughs> you've presented the the project at sigma psi i'm really interested to hear that was the sigma psi experience like what is being in the sigma psi network essentially brought to your life definitely it's given me on a more literal sense it's giving me the chance to present at a professional level conference from even just as a high schooler which is something i never thought i'd be able to do and it, it's been such an eye-opening experience to see what is, what is doing research actually like on the undergraduate or graduate levels and talking with other students and other professionals who present and learning about 
the different work that's being done and kind of inspiring me to look at different avenues and different things that I might potentially want to study when I get to undergrad, uh, college or graduate school. And um, I think it's just been really interesting to see what it's kind of like ISEF in that sense, where it's like really interesting to see everyone convene and see what work is everybody else doing? Because in science, it's not just you, it's like a very collaborative and community. It's a big community. And so being in Sigma Xi has really opened my eyes to that and just being able to be a part of that society, which I can totally see benefiting me even beyond high school. Yes, it's such a beneficial network and you are part of another, is it a national or international squad? I think it's technically international. I haven't really seen a lot of people coming from other countries, but I know like they have like an online competition right now and that's definitely open to people in all countries. So I think I've seen a few from other countries before. So shout out to that. Yeah. <laughs> you can participate in online competitions. It's open new doors. Being out there and presenting your research really puts things in, in a different kind of perspective. And since we've touched on that, I want to move into the department of discussing with you science competitions, because you are involved at science club and you develop strategies for competitions. And uh, for the listeners out there who have already participated or who are planning to participate, what would your essential tips be on how to make, you know, that lasting impact at science fairs when presenting your project? The thing that helped me a lot, especially when just doing the presentation a lot of times, was just really be knowing how to explain your project at all levels, whether that be at like a layperson's level or talking to an expert in your field. Because if you're able to communicate like the knowledge that you've learned and like the and the stuff that you've worked on at both levels, like it really shows how well you know your project and how well you can communicate it. And by being able to communicate it well, other people can also recognize the value of what you've done, even if it's not necessarily their field or if they're not necessarily at that level of study. Um, and just another thing that's always um, helped me was that speaking with a lot of passion about the project, I've had really strong passions about what I've done just because I'm passionate about helping others and working on a global context. And um, I've heard that like from judges that they recognize this passion in students when they talk as opposed to just talking like a machine and that's the most human aspect of doing research inside we we feel like we understand what the impacts are and we have true a love and a passion for what it is that we do and so being able to show that is like the most genuine thing you can do and i think that really helps people stand out absolutely you can just detect from another person's eyes if they have that sparkling effect whether their hearts and their minds are set on fire for for the stem fields also on the note that you said that you have to explain it in a simple manner and perhaps move off from there when you start to get into a deeper conversation with the judge but that's so true because there is even this YouTube channel, I don't know if you've seen those videos, when someone, not just someone, for example, Nobel Laureate, explains a difficult concept to a kid, a high school student, a university student, and a PJ scholar slash colleague. Oh, the five levels videos. I love those. Those are so cool. Yes. And 
as you expanded on it, instantly popped it in my mind that you you got to apply that same kind of principle when doing science fairs. And I really agree with you on that. I also have a really big family. So a lot of my younger cousins who are like in or who were in elementary school, they're now in middle school now. And they are like, so it's so nice to see they're like super passionate about doing science in um, their own different ways. And they love to hear about my projects. And so it's actually, in a literal sense, it's a really good practice for being able to explain the project at different levels because, like, I want them to understand what it is I do instead of just being like, oh, that's so, like, far-fetched. That's something that I could never do. That's way too advanced to say, like, no, like, you can understand this. This is something that you might actually be interested in. And so I think by being able to explain it at a level, especially for a younger kid, it inspires them to say, oh, I understand that. Let me see what I can do. And so... I've seen that even within my own family. And that's something that has always stood out to me about presenting just in general. That is so great. So you have a support group within the family (laughs) (laughs) in terms of science fairs. And it must be so fun, inspirational for people out there. Because sharing the project with your family members first is a great stepping stone. Because when it comes to telling it to a judge, you feel like all the spotlight is on you kind of puts you on the spot there but just having that experience and practice of like doing it at different levels with like family members or even like mentors and stuff to see like what can you improve on or what can you explain more and so it just gives more practice to be able to answer those on the spot questions and that that route of presenting and a little bit in other field in terms of public outreach are involved in uh, several organizations, but a really crucial phenomena that has become increasingly popular is vaping. And I'm going to tell you honestly, I've heard first about it when I was at ISEF 2019 and the students were telling me all about it. That was my first exposure to it, but of course you know a lot more information. So how are you raising awareness of this phenomena and the realm of policymaking? I'm in this volunteer organization as part of my county's behavioral health coalition, and it's a group of just teenagers, like middle and high school students, who are really passionate about um, preventing substance use for um, underage kids. So we do, we tackle like lots of different things, but one of our newest um, avenues was looking into vaping, because that's like such a big prominent issue, especially with teens in the United States. And so uh, one of the things that I've done personally, so as a group, we just try to do a lot of different outreach with not only teens, but also with teachers and school nurses and other health professionals to say, to kind of explain the problem, explain the phenomena of why it's so popular and really try to prevent, present solutions as to how to prevent the problem from spreading further. Um, And so I've kind of done that as a part of my volunteer group with my peers. But another thing I've done was I created this Google map using, um, and I have made different points of all the middle and high schools in my district, as well as all the different vape shops in my district. And I tried to see there is this correlation between the distance between like the shops and the schools and in what neighborhoods they were closer versus what where they were farther away. And some of them were like across the street from schools within walking distance. So I can imagine like students walking home from school and they see 
people outside the shop advertising them to come inside, try this stuff out, things of that sort. And so what I wanted to do was kind of present this issue and say, look, these are these shops shouldn't be so close to these schools. And there's this big problem with advertising, which is how a lot of kids do even decide to get involved with vaping in the first place. So I wanted to present that to our local county government to pass an ordinance to kind of ban those sign flippers and advertisers outside the stores that were so close to the schools to prevent yet another avenue of accessible advertising for students to get into vaping. Such an awesome way of solving this truly destructive activity that you've utilized this Google map and the correlation you've drawn this conclusion is really thought-provoking because perhaps the commercials that pop on TV, even if we hate it, we get used to them. Uh, no matter how much we want to go outside of the box and explore our creativity, there is some kind of mm -hmm. regularity and patterns we are used to in our thinking as well. And I guess when they're walking home, they, as you just said, they see those vape shops, the forbidden apple, they're just basically getting used to the sight of walking past that wave shop every day. And there's even, there's a whole other avenue of different advertising methods that uh, vape shop, not vape shops, but like vape companies will use in terms of online and social media advertising to kind of entice young people specifically to try their products. And it's a very destructive thing because then they'll kind of turn around and say, oh, uh, we didn't mean to target young people, but it's shown in their actions and like what they do with their advertising that it does target young people more so than others. And um, it's really one of our big goals as a group is to kind of talk to the teens and say, like, look, we're being used here in this case. Like, this isn't something that's good for you. And we are kind of being tested like guinea pigs by all these different um advertising agents by these different agencies victims in the advertising lab it's also distinct to regular smoking um, of course mm -hmm. that's a no-no that's a big no-no as well yes. <laughs> so for a long time teenagers thought that vaping is actually not as bad as regular smoking but the long series that have been revolving around the internet showed quite the exact opposite one of the major misconceptions was that it wasn't as bad as regular smoking because, I mean, we've all kind of grown up knowing like, oh, smoking is bad, right? Because of all the different ad campaigns and stuff that's come out of um, with regular smoking. But there's actually like some of these uh, vaping chemicals, they use these different chemicals that will essentially coat your throat so that it doesn't have the same burning effect in your throat as smoking a regular cigarette. and um, that's just like one thing so that it's like it's therefore more appealing like oh I don't get the same burn as when if you were to regular smoke a regular cigarette or they have those different flavorings now there's like the mango and the um cucumber and like different appealing flavors that make it seem like oh you know it's just a fruit flavored whatever but it's actually like made out of really harmful chemicals and a lot of people weren't really recognizing that or were being told incorrect things. And so we always try to kind of squash the misconceptions about that. It's so great that you are breaking them down and informing the public because getting the information out there is a key area 
of preventing teens from going into full-on vaping and vaping at all. And it's really interesting because you've got that sweetie flavor on top, but mixed truths are actually as destructive as full-on lies. And that's great that you're involved in this public outreach aspect. Now let's move on to the stage a little bit. Um, I'm really excited to talk about this because you received the vocal award by the American Protégé International Vocal Competition and were selected to perform solo at Carnegie Hall. And I would just love you to share more of that remarkable experience. I can guess that you didn't have stage fright. How was it? I did have a little stage fright just because <laughs> it was such a surreal experience. I still can't even believe it. Like Carnegie Hall has been one of those like world-renowned venues and it's something that is so far out there in terms of a performer um to say like oh you know that's so that's like for professionals and all of that and uh you know the old saying how do you get to Carnegie Hall practice 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 so um that was just something it's always been in the back of my mind as like oh that's that's like the dream but like who knows right and then when it actually did happen through American Protégé which allows for people of all ages really to perform at, at Carnegie Hall. It was such a wonderful experience to perform at such a historic venue. I was, I'm really never going to forget that. And because it was all ages, it was really cool to see everyone at like different stages of their music career performing in different genres and um, to see kind of how everybody else is doing and like what I could take away from perform, like in terms of performance style and technique and all of that. And um, even after like barely knowing each other, like all of the kids and stuff and even the teenagers and adults even were all so supportive of everybody's performances. We're wishing each other luck and um, cheering for everyone backstage because we got to watch all the performances on this little monitor backstage. So it was such a warm environment to be a part of and such a good experience. This is incredible, the fact that you viewed it as a learning experience, a humbling you know, opportunity to, for you to perform at such a distinct place and being really in the top of all the best performers in the U.S., but also that you've developed this strong, kind of familiar bond within a few hours with each other. Yeah, definitely. That was something that stood out a lot. In which genre did you perform? Um, I perform in classical, so I did, I was more in the, I did an older song that was more in like the romantic period, so like probably 15, 1600s, but I was in the classical songs period, um, but not necessarily like the opera genre, so there's like two kind of separate, there's like different distinctions of what classical is, and it's not just like the typical opera that people would think. So that was really interesting to also not just perform like something typical, which is also really good and really advanced, but something a little more off to the side and unique that I really enjoyed that genre a lot. Yes, breaking the borders within the musical <laughs> field as well. And essentially, nationally recognized soprano or soprano. Do you say soprano, soprano, like a gender um, distinction in music or no? Um, I haven't heard that. I I haven't heard that. I think it's just soprano because that's just like a vocal part, just depending on your range of how high or low you can sing. So, but I think, I think people call it soprano. I just haven't heard of that before. 
Latin languages coming in the way. But I just wanted to make sure that I say it in the correct way. But yes, you are a national recognized soprano. And I'm really intrigued to hear what would be your top three songs to perform or some memorable uh, performances you remember. Definitely. Carnegie Hall has to rank at number one. I not only performed there, but I performed a song. Um, it's an Italian song, and um, it was written by a composer named Bellini, and I love his work because, like, romantic period, like, those songs are just so beautiful, and uh, that was kind of the category that I was in in this competition, um, like, romantic Baroque period style music, and so performing that was definitely one of my, like, dream stuff to do um and then even away from classical music I've done a little bit of theater and so there's this one song from a musical called She Loves Me called Vanilla Ice Cream which I heard it and I love that song so much so I've always wanted to perform that and then there's um a performance that I remember just from like my past performances I did this competition just local to my state to sing the national anthem at a football game and part of that competition was you had to sing like just a regular song but it was at this banquet style event so I wanted to pick a song that was more well known to people at the time and not just like some classical song that no one really knows so I picked This Is Me from The Greatest Showman and um, that was such a fun performance because like I really like stepped out of my comfort zone with that one and my shell in terms of like performing such an upbeat and like confidence based song. And like, that was really a fun thing to do. And I just, I don't know, it was natural to perform, but not in like such an putting myself out there kind of way. So really doing that for like one of the first times in my recent memory was such a cool experience and like my family was there and like even total strangers were like oh that was such a great performance like like embodied it you were like so really good at portraying it and that was something that really was so that meant a lot because being able to portray the music is like one of the most important things about performing having that connection with the audience the the emotion mm -hmm. bond formed and even with the song itself having that emotional connection with what the meaning of the song is Help me out here because I'm not sure about the phrase. It pulls your heartstrings? Yeah, that's the phrase. Tugs at your heartstrings a little bit, makes you kind of feel for the performer. And it's like, oh, wow, like I really understand like what the song is all about. And, and if you really are left feeling like you like that message like resonates with you, then you know, like, okay, that's like a solid performance. If I'm leaving a positive impact on the audience and that they really appreciate the music more than just a song from a movie hmm. just by you saying that i realize that your external outreach or your love for public policy as well is translated in kind of a dissimilar way but still in music as well that you want to give something to people and, and it's really nice to hear and, um, in terms of that you're also the president of the tria music honor society so what are some of the activities you organize in that society one of the things our main goal is a group was just to really use the gift of music like in terms of just instrument performing or singing performances or even in musical theater and really take that gift and share it with others and like do it to promote good in the community and so one of the things that we've done 
was uh, performances in rehab centers at our local hospital, as well as different nursing homes. One of the things we done we was we went to this one nursing home, which had a lot of um, dementia patients and Alzheimer's patients. And it's actually been shown that a lot of music and like listening to music and um, doing music-based activities has been really helpful in promoting the retention of memories for Alzheimer's patients. So we were singing this one Elvis song called Can't Help Falling in Love with You. And these two patients just started singing along with us. And like, it was such a powerful thing because like they remembered that song from like when they were younger and they were singing along like with their friends in the uh, nursing home. And that was like one of the most powerful experiences just to see like what music can really do and what, how helpful it can be. And even on a lighter note, we do this cute little song telegram service in our school called Songs from the Heart, where we essentially like, um, we kind of sing little uh, songs based off of this list of like typical love songs, Valentine's Day songs. And we've sung it for um, couples and even just for friends and um, doing those little fun performances. So like having both aspects of what music can do can brighten someone's day, just like in terms of a cute gesture, or it can be something like really profound. And so I've been really lucky to help organize both of these really like unique things about like using music in our society. That is so impactful. Singing can help falling in love, revise memories, or singing other songs can create new memories. I think in neurobiological terms, hearing the same notes you for 50 years before can bring you back the sensation you felt in that time. Now, that's a really crucial aspect um, I would like to touch on because you are um, clearly an accomplished um, woman in STEM and how do you view the role of women in the STEAM fields? I wanted to add that A because music is an art as well, so I wanted to include that in there. And perhaps what is a misconception you would like to alter? I think the role of women in STEAM fields is like, it's at a good place right now. I feel like women are getting a lot more of the recognition they deserve for a lot of the um, breakthroughs and discoveries and accomplishments that they're making. But um, one of the common misconceptions that I've always heard is that girls can't do both. Like a lot, one of the misconceptions with STEM fields in general was that, oh, um, just one of those gender stereotypes, like they, the women can't really do well in the STEM field and all that stuff. So they should just stick with maybe more um, arts-based fields and things like that. And then even in arts-based fields, there are women who are not really um, able to succeed as well as men just because of this same gender stereotype that like, oh, men have total control over the field. And the misconception with that I've experienced is that like you can't do both. And I think that's incredibly incorrect. And that doing both is like, it's such a great way to explore both your passions, but it also helps you like know more about yourself and even do better in both things in their own separate ways, but also in their interconnected way. And um, I think that it's really important to teach girls from a young age, like 
if you want to do arts, great. If you want to do STEM, great. If you want to do both, even better that you have the ability and uh, yeah, you have the capability to do both. And that if you have that passion to do both, it should be well supported in the environment that you're in. And I think that's something that I want to help tell young girls, any listeners out there that if you are passionate, you can definitely put, if you set your mind to it, you can do it. And it's so rewarding to do so. Just as you've expanded upon laying the foundations at such a malleable phase is so crucial because those values that you instill in those children are going to stick with them Mm -hmm. for the upcoming years when high school hits and puberty strikes in and all the thoughts are going to be in in the similar places. But you are a living example of bringing in the left and the right brain approach to conducting research or singing at Carnegie Hall. It's just great that you can bring in the creative approach to the more methodological um, sides of a project as well. There's actually something that I've since learned since being in middle school. There's this phase, I believe, I don't totally remember the exact term, but they call it like a drop-off where girls in elementary school who are really excited to do um, STEM field, science, math, and then they kind of get into middle school and there's this phenomenon that happens where a lot of them kind of backtrack on those interests. They no longer want to be involved in STEM as much or participate in typical STEM activities because it's seen as the quote-unquote boyish thing to do. And um, this can actually be very detrimental because then these girls go into high school and they don't want to study STEM anymore and that it just kind of perpetuates the same gender gap that we've been seeing and so I think that's one of the really important things in terms of misconceptions is to also make sure we say like it's not boyish to want to do engineering it's not boyish to want to do robotics or STEM and it's not even girlish to want to just do arts like anyone can do really whatever their passion is and if you have a passion like definitely pursue it and follow it because it'll take you to wonderful things. That is so interesting that you mentioned it. I haven't heard that you've got this crisis face uh, when girls go to high school and they are discouraged from pouring into more STEM activities. And it's just so great to reinforce that. You're passionate about reaching out to those girls as well because if we think about for example, freeze etching in in biology, the thing that happens is you break at the most structurally unreliable point that going into high school is equal to that. You don't know where you belong and you break when you feel like you're weak in something and perhaps the common stereotype that only boys do the science fair stuff um, can be degraded in that way by reinforcing those positive comments to girls. Definitely. And just helping them to get past those weak points that you had mentioned before. Like if they feel that way, they kind of address it at that point and say like, there's still different avenues and possibilities to want to, in order to pursue STEM and just really encourage girls who have, who may face those setbacks to not be discouraged and still keep going in those fields. Yes, 100% agree. We are moving into the if question part of the podcast. 
And this is a question I asked from every podcast guest, and um, I mentioned it before, but we've had quite a few guests on the podcast in a more of a mental kind of state. But if you could have dinner with anyone living today or in the past, who would you choose and why? I would choose, actually, I would choose the guitarist from the band Queen, Brian May. Um, so he's actually like one of the perfect examples of what it means to be involved in arts and STEM. So like not only was he this like world famous guitarist, rock and roll star, um, but one of the things that he would do, um, he was very into astronomy and astrophysics and he was actually working on a PhD in astrophysics, left that to go pursue his music with the band Queen, and then after a while returned to his thesis and got a PhD actually in studying, I believe it was interplanetary dust. And so I just thought that was so interesting. I had no idea that like this famous star who was like pretty like world famous top of back in the 80s, 90s was like super well known with everybody, but was also pursuing his love of science and astrophysics and he got a PhD thesis despite all of this and even on a more um combined sense of like music and stem he like did a lot of the acoustic testing and building of his guitar that he performs with all the time so I just would love to know more about his journey and like his things that he dealt with and how he was able to pursue both of those passions at like the highest level so inspirational that he could bring forward the intersection of those distinct fields and I feel that you could connect on a whole lot of levels yeah he's proof that you can pursue both so I wanted to see that in action I think that's so fascinating so great and let me know when that happens <laughs> <laughs> and now here comes the dessert that game section and as the okay. name suggests you gotta choose either or okay Text message or call? I like call because I, that sounds a little old-fashioned to me, but with call, like especially now when we're stuck in the house from quarantine and stuff, it's just a great way to have that free-flowing conversation that you can't necessarily have on text just because it requires you to type and then you could like not see the message and there's all sorts of gaps, but with a call, it's just so free-flowing and you can talk for hours and it's like the most simulating thing to real life conversation with friends and stuff that we've all been kind of missing out on because we're all in our houses but yeah call yes i actually like the traditional approach because well with texting i've talked uh, about this with one of my friends that you know sometimes when you write a text you can misread what the other person intended to say and it just creates question marks inside of you that, oh, oh, perhaps this or that happened. But with call, it's more interpersonally connected. Yeah, when you're on a call, it's pretty straightforward and you can get that clarification that you can't necessarily get on text. Yes, and you can avoid catfish. <laughs> <laughs> in general when um, I think back in the 2000s you could like video chat with several people and then one Justin fever popped up and the girls went crazy and it just turned out that there was a flat paper in front of the screen so oh. that doesn't work with call all the time <laughs> and the next one uh, tropical or arctic destination I am gonna go with arctic just because I'm from Florida, I live in a tropical environment, so it's hot, like, 
all the time. And I want to go to a place where there's snow. I've only seen snow once in my life. So do you remember it? It was actually at the Sigma Xi conference I went to a couple months ago. It was in Madison, Wisconsin. And my friends and I, we all from Florida, we had a snowball fight at the airport, like right outside the airport while we were waiting for our cars and our van to come take us to the hotel. And then on the roof of the convention center, we all built snowmen. That is so great that, that you could experience it first time and at such a scientific event. Yeah, exactly. And the next one is chocolate or vanilla? Chocolate. 100% chocolate. <laughs> all the way. Dark or milk or, or white? Oh, milk. milk chocolate. Sometimes dark chocolate, depending, but usually milk chocolate. Going with a median value. <laughs> C++ or Python? Oh, um, wow. Okay. So I am actually learning Python now. I just because I'm in the house for quarantine stuff. So I've been taking some classes just to increase my knowledge on Python even more so. So I'm going to say, uh, I'll say Python. Yeah. And the last one is headphones or speakers. Oh, um... I'm going to say headphones. It's like your own little personal speaker. The grand question and the one that encapsulates what we've been talking about is what does science mean to you? Oh, science. Science means everything in a word. Um, I think generally the power to create something is such a wonderful and unique thing. And it adds like such a new purpose behind everything that we do. And science allows us to do just that. It allows us to create and explore with a purpose. And it really helps to really try to make our world a better place, not to sound corny, but help it and help people to our best, the best of our abilities. And I think the power of science and even the power of arts is that it's, they're not separated or compartmentalized they are wall one and the same every all the disciplines of science and even the disciplines of the arts they all have such similarities and differences that we can learn from and i think the more we decompartmentalize all these fields the more we can progress as a whole absolutely and it wasn't corny at all it was amazing <laughs> yes i love it <laughs> love a good pun okay then great I feel like that when you were in science competitions, and please prove my point, but... <laughs> I Yeah, I can't explain it, but yeah, I've definitely, I definitely agree with that. Absolutely, I really like the, the fact that you mentioned the, the compartmentalization notion of conducting research. And overall, thank you for coming on the podcast. It was a distinctively unique episode by bringing doing research and singing together. And thank you for sharing your advice on different um, topics, such as how to conduct research, how to do a great presentation, the health effects of vaping. So, so very well-rounded episode. Thank you so much for having me. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. If you want to show your support and be updated on all the news, make sure to hit that subscribe button and follow the pod on Instagram and Facebook as well. As always, thank you for taking a few moments of science with us and stay tuned for the next episode.